Welcome to episode 180 of No Challenges Remaining. It's like a whole reversal U-turn we've done here in No Challenges Remaining. It's very exciting. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by Courtney Nguyen. Hello, Courtney. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Ben? Pretty great. Tennis is going on in February, technically. Uh, nothing too major, really, I think. Nothing too. I think like when, the, when one of the biggest stories of your month is the wrong song being played. I think it's probably been a slow month on court. Sure. You... I mean, it's, you know. It's a bad time. <laughs> I don't know if I would completely dismiss it as like, oh, nothing's happened. That's why you care about this. I, I wouldn't go that far, but <laughs> but I understand the point that you're making. Yes, I should. I did not mean to downplay the horror. <laughs> that's, that's fair that I'm sure shuck and all German people. And then hopefully the Americans, once they realize what had happened with actually, I didn't even realize late, until later that it was a live performance of it. Yeah. It was just a guy who got, for those of you who don't know, the anthemist singing before the Germany U.S. Fed Cup tie last weekend in Hawaii accidentally, or I assume accidentally, uh, incorrectly sang the first stanza of uh, which you know starts Deutschland über alles and all the sort of nationalistic things that were used during uh, from 1922 to 1945 and are associated with the Nazi era in Germany and is a song no longer used and the Germans were taken aback by this understandably and loudly tried to sing uh, over the correct version and it was an unfortunate scene and just had to be very very jarring for them and their reactions to it they did not hold back Barbara Rittner or Andrei Petkovich. I guess the, the two I heard sound off on it uh, when asked. So, yeah, it was not good. Yeah, no, it was not good. And it was it was just I think it was just unfortunate. In a, I mean, obviously, in addition to the incident in and of itself, you have a player in Petkovic who is one of those players that is acutely aware of, you know, the political situation, uh, not just in the States, but worldwide. Um, and so it, it becomes one of those things that becomes very difficult to ignore uh, once it happens. It, it's hard to just kind of like move past it, like no big deal. Oh, the wrong song was played. I mean, I think that, you know, just again, it, it's just kind of the perfect storm of this was the wrong country for it to happen with. It was the wrong uh, implication to be tagged with, and it was the wrong player and the wrong captain. It should be said, yeah. um, to to kind of be involved. You know, I mean, I, I it's I hard to imagine Kerber being as vocal about it. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And 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 there have been instances in the past. I understand where the wrong anthem has been played, um, where it has been also offensive, but maybe not as much so as in this situation. And part of that does again come with. Um, you know, the players that are present at the time, whether or not it really, truly bothers them. And I think that in this situation, particularly with um, with Pekovic being kind of the de facto leader of the team. Uh, yeah, it was it was a tough one to kind of move past. And uh, yeah, that was one of the weirder ties I've ever seen. Very, very strange. Then you had, yeah. Then you had Gerges, you know, slipping and hurting her knee. To end the second rubber, court. I think it just started raining like in the middle of the point. It hadn't been raining before the point started. That's sort of a freakish thing to happen there. And then a bizarre final match uh, with uh, Pekovic leading Coco Vandewey by a set in 4-2. And then Vandewey takes this prolonged, forlorn medical timeout where she's like her feet up, lying on the ground with her feet up on the chair and keeps getting rubbed downs. And then, you know, doesn't lose a game after that. And the match completely changes and big celebration. And there was a strange handshake moment all of it was just it was a lot and it's you know part of i guess i want to say why we love fed cup but that was nothing was good about that whole weekend in terms of the things no. on offer in terms of injury and and you know nazi era anthems those are not what we try to aspire for it's, it's uh, really not what's on the table when when no. we start things off yeah no it was uh like i said it was it was probably one of the most confusing and perplexing and just in many ways just the horrifying uh, ties that I've seen just because of all the extenuating circumstances. And, and, you know, I mean, let's not be completely one-sided. I mean, yes, Coco didn't lose a game after that 
that medical timeout. Pekovic didn't win a game uh, <laughs> after that medical <laughs> timeout. She was a breakup. Uh, she had that match well in hand. Oh, she melted down. And yeah. she and she and she let it go. And and that that again, it's obviously very disappointing for her. Uh, but across the board, it was just like one of those ties where it's like no one like the Germans just got nothing out of it. Like, you know, Siegemund was already injured and I think she injured herself. She was supposed to be the, number, the German number one going into that tie. I think she injured herself in practice. Then Pekovic is the number one. She takes those two bad losses to risk and uh, to, to Vandeweghe. Gerges injures herself. She's She's got like a, 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 a knee sprain now that's going to potentially impact her which sucks because she she started the season really really well yeah i don't i and the germans had their flight canceled to come back it, it was <laughs> a disaster across the board for the germans and and yeah it's it's one of those funny things about fed cup and davis cup where you know as much as it is obviously a national competition and you know you're focused on on trying to get the win and and all these sorts of things i think that most countries every host country uh especially in, in the world group take should well i think they do but if they don't they should take pride in their hosting ability like it, it's sure. almost like the you know yeah you could totally screw it like you could totally screw your opponent by like putting them in roach ridden hotels and you know giving them crappy food and stuff like that and i know that there have been in fed cup and, and davis cup ties where that has been the case but but you know sportsmanship and all that you're supposed to like not want you want to make it a very hospitable situation for your uh, visiting team and i don't think the germans felt that way this time around which Sidebar. sucks because it was like miami it was it was freaking maui like, i know it should, it should be, be nice. amazing yeah. Sidebar, do you remember when Tommy Haas thought that he'd been poisoned yes. at a Fed Cup tie in uh, sorry, Davis Cup tie in German in Russia? That I was do. that was remarkable. It's just yep. it's a piece, piece of tennis like odd if I was writing a book of like odd facts about tennis, you know, one of those like type books, I would put a stance on that in there. Odd moments. Ah, uh, poisonings. Let's see. Let's completely change. There's no really good segue from poisonings to anything else. <laughs> that is true. Um, with not too much other tennis going on this week of note, we're going to take a few questions from you, which we're very excited to get to do. Uh, first one of them is from Lucy Sophia, who asks, do you feel, following Melbourne, a lot of tournament directors will be reconsidering the hard courts they currently have? I.e., I guess, expanding off of what she wrote there, going for faster hard courts, the way Australia seemed to have faster than normal on tour these days. Uh, considering how much of a success that tournament was seemed to be in terms of matches and results, I guess. What do you think, Courtney? Will that one tournament, which all, all the dream finals and all that, be a one-off or something of a possible sea change? I mean, I think it's a great question. I I don't know. I, th I think that tournament directors should look into it. I mean, I think um, I, I can't remember if we discussed this at the Australian Open or whether this was an offline conversation or just a conversation that I had with myself in my own head sitting mm -hmm. at my desk, which is very possible. But this whole idea of, you know, theoretically and traditionally, we want to see, you know, four slams, technically four swings kind of of of, of the year um, be different. Um, and a lot of that is governed by court speed. Um, and this type of game, you know, like back in the day, you know, you go back 15, 20 years and there were clay court specialists, there were grass court specialists. And, you, you know, it, it didn't matter that Andy Roddick crashed out in the first round of Roland Garros if he was making finals at Wimbledon. And, and we never it was expected it was expected. Yeah. And we never thought that that was weird. Nowadays, if you were to have those those types of specialists, it would be so weird. Like, like you know, like because that's why we that's why we get so like hype over grass Sveta Pironkova. Right. Or whatever. I mean, we just like we, we I think we yearn for that in some ways for players to have like quirky results. And they do now. And they just really don't. Yeah, they really and don't. And, made a French Open quarter. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and in a full season, therefore, becomes this would be my argument, becomes incredibly monotonous and it becomes incredibly one note when you have the same exact four or five players on the men's tour dominating week in week out every single week i don't think that that's particularly fun and obviously everybody can disagree with me we all know how i feel about domination but i don't think that you know that should happen over the course of a 10 to 11 month season and the same with the women like you shouldn't have you know a core group of like you know eight nine players that are the relevant players every single week week in week out 
Yeah, we have I, this amazing circumstance where we have five active players who have a career slam in Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Serena, and Sharapova. Right. That just speaks to this. Like that, I'm sure that's never happened before. Yeah. Tennis, and or at least not in you know maybe. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's never happened before. No, I, I just, can't think and, of and it. And the fact that it yeah. seems normal. And they were like, all like, oh, we're all waiting for Andy to get Andy Murray to get his career slam. Right. As we if it's like something it. that should happen. Yeah, is, we totally it. Sh- it should expect be so it. rare. It should be so yeah. rare. And that's the thing, right? So that so that's one side of the coin, which is like, I just don't think that, you know, going back to homogene- homogenization of court speed, that it's a good thing. I just don't think that the same handful of players should be dominating all the time. Now, the flip side of that is then once you break things up into four very distinct, um, you know, swings where, let's say, theoretically, the Australian swing is particularly fast. Um, and we all know that, like, Indian Wells, for example, is like a really weird, like, fast but slow hard court. It's, it's, it's odd. Yeah. Um, you know, things like that. But, let, but let's, let's, in my hypothetical, say, okay – from January until the end of March, we are talking about fast hard courts. Let's say they all they all agree to play fast. And mm-hmm. Then after that, you turn to clay and it's traditional clay. And then after that, you go to grass and let's say Wimbledon speeds up grass. It's grass a little bit more than it has been. Um, and then after that, you start to play kind of a medium, medium, slow hard court kind of for until at least the, the U.S. Open then. I think that things should be sped up at the end of the year. I don't think that you should be asking these players, both the men and the women, to be grinding it out uh, from the baseline um, at the end Mm -hmm. of the season, but whatever. But if you have that, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is that you're going to have more variety in winners and variety in champions. And like I just said, like that's something that I would personally like. Is that good for the sport? I don't know. Like Because there is an argument to be made that you know the fact that the sport is dominated by a handful of players – is a good thing. I understand that from a marketing perspective and from television, et cetera, et cetera. I don't like it, but I get it. So maybe if once you split everything up and if we went back to the days of like the Coreas and the Gaudios and, and all these. Gustavo Curtin. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, okay, these, they're relevant on clay and then they're like not really all that relevant outside of it. And these are the guys that are going to win on grass. Like maybe that's interesting tournament to tournament, but over the course of a season, like, is that interesting? I don't know. I'm asking the question. I don't know. I think I think it's definitely worth considering. I think that Australia hit that sort of perfect sweet spot of court speed where, you know, players because Nadal made the final two. It wasn't like it was just one kind of player who could do it. And it also wasn't so fast to the point where you had, you know, Isner and Ronich, who are two often bemoaned players stylistically, honestly. People, you know, actively say they don't like watching those guys. They didn't do particularly well in Australia either. Um so it wasn't like I think it it wasn't overbearing like you know late '90s Wimbledon where it was just ace fest constantly and Sampras winning easy and Krychek and Ivanišević and things like that and it, but it still rewarded offense. You have Misha Zverev doing well, Venus doing well, but also Rafa and also Dimitrov is not particular. I guess does like grass, but isn't a huge fast court player. I don't know it just had a perfect balance to me, and I think that it's that's pretty hard to achieve. And I think Australia was lightning in a bottle. And I think it set an incredibly high bar for the rest of the year. And I'm just imagining that people being like, oh, the French Open, like, oh, it was great. But, you know, there wasn't a Federer Nadal final. So I guess it was not worth much. (laughs) Just like I think that's unfair if you're judging everything based on Australia. But overall, yeah, I think some shakeup would be good. I don't know if I don't know if it has to always be these united sort of cycles that you're talking about. I'm not sure how feasible that like I think this sort of first quarter of the year is a bit of a motley group completely. I think that I don't know that Australia has much to do with like what happens after Australia. Oh yeah, for sure. No, it, it, it doesn't. There's no way that you're going to get tournaments to unify um, on outside on of maybe speed. U.S. Open series. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Outside of like very specific, you know, uh, federation-sponsored swings. You know, I, I don't think it'll happen, but and that's fine too. I mean, like again, like I, I think that it would add a fun element to the tour. When you're sitting there and you're like, oh, well, these players want a fast court, so they go and they schedule to fast courts, and these ones want to grind a little more, so they're they're going to the slower courts. I, I think that's kind of fun, in a way. Yeah. Um, and it probably does happen already. I'm sure that guys, you know, oh, for sure. want to play slow courts are down in South America right now, and ones who don't are in Rotterdam. Right, exactly. But, yeah. you know, but I, I just think it's an interesting thing to kind of just like from a – philosophical standpoint kind of think about like do we want as much as i know that court homogenization is bemoaned 
Like, I don't know anybody who's like, oh, no, it's been great. Like, like <laughs> no tennis fan genuinely thinks that that's true. I, I, I just haven't or at least not one that I've met anyway. Um, but once we start thinking about varying court speeds, is the result a good one for the sport? Which is which is a question that can be debated until five o'clock in the morning, uh, and then also again, like the fact that the Australian Open this year set the benchmark and and is making people kind of think about it. I think, as you said, we do have to recognize a little bit of lightning in a bottle there. Uh, I just, you know, if everybody, if if slams could guarantee that if they sped things up, that Roger would win every time, they would absolutely <laughs> speed up everything. We all know that every tournament would be like put on ice. Um, yeah. but, uh, but I don't know if that's, that's actually a feasible, uh, expectation. So here's a question for us. Another, an unrelated question from at thoughts on balls on Twitter. Uh, what do you think are realistic, realistic expectations for Maria Sharapova's comeback in terms of results slash rankings over the next 12 months? So we haven't talked about this on the show. Maria Sharapova is coming back to tour in Stuttgart in mid-April, uh, where she's got a wild card, and she already has a wild card into Madrid as well, and I think Rome. I've heard, I've heard some. We're not sure if Rome is confirmed, but Rome is likely, probably. Um, and she comes back with no ranking. So, Courtney, what do you think? And having not played uh, at this point, will be you know going on 15, 16 months. So, what do you think are realistic expectations for Maria, who will be turning 30 this year, in terms of results? It's always a question, uh, you know, just because physicality obviously matters um, while she obviously hasn't been in competition. You know, she's been training a lot. Hopefully, you know, no niggles kind of come up between now and April for her um, mm-hmm. and that she's able to take the court 100 percent. If that is the case. I mean, I think that Maria coming back off of, you know, an 18 month absence where she's allowed her body to heal and if she's back to hitting the ball where she was, you know, back then, I think that she's easily a top 20 player. Um, oh, easily. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be the, my expectation. I, I would expect her to, you know, beat players that are outside of the top 20. And and from there, I think that it's a proving ground to really show where she is from there and, and really a proving ground for the rest of the field as well to for them, you know, to show that the game has moved on, that the game has improved, that players ranked you know from 11 to 20 are are that good and and better than than maybe what they were when she left the game um so so that that's where i think most of my questions are but i i do think that if she's at full strength she's she's top 20 minimum i think that's right i mean i think that there's she was playing very sporadically uh in the last year or so that she was playing with a lot of injuries and things like that um coming up and that sort of you know off and on uh, scheduling and comebacks and the wrist issue she had. Um, but if all of this time away makes her not rusty, but just sort of healed up, then I think absolutely she should be able to get there. And we've just seen this from top players before coming off of layoffs. Look at how good the comebacks Kleisters. were for Kleisters and Hingis even. Hingis, who was out for years yeah. and years. Um, and uh, for Three years. Yeah, Justin Hennon, exactly. They all, I don't know if Hennon played enough to get back to top 10, but definitely top 20. And She's a contender. They were, yeah, and Hennon made this. Yeah. Hennon made this final the first slam back she played in Australia in 2010. Kleister's won the first slam back she played in U.S. Open 2009. Um, so I think there's no reason to think, there's no reason to rule out that happening for Sharapova. Um, it obviously her comeback is sort of different. People, her opponents might be approaching her with a different mindset. We haven't had someone coming off a long, uh, high-profile banned for positive tests like this so we'll see how if that affects her how the wild cards might be different if the crowds are different for her opponents are different to her sharapova is not somebody who i think would be the most susceptible to those sort of outside forces in terms of rattling her uh, mentality but we don't know we'll see how she comes back and if she still has that same sort of sharpness she's had but she looks like she's training pretty intensely what she's putting on social media so i would certainly not discount it i think she could absolutely be uh, assuming she plays a full schedule, top 20 by the end of the year. Sure. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, I would be surprised if she wasn't mm-hmm. top 20 at the end of the year. I think that, yeah, she just, I, I can't, I, don't, I just don't think that the game has progressed so much in the last 18 months as to have completely shifted 
you know, the the battle lines or right. Unlike Hingis, who like came back in a different yeah, generation a little bit. Exactly. Not and, sure and, about this case. And Kleisters came back a different player, in my opinion, yeah. than than what she was before. So um so there is that. I don't think that obviously with a Sharapova that she has the flexibility in her game to come back as a different player. I, I think that she she is the player that she is and um and it's just a matter of getting back to doing those things well. That being said, I mean, you know, if you are looking at the WTA top twenty these days, you are looking at you know, Wozniacki is in there in the top twenty, right? Uh a Bachinsky uh, Svitolina, Venus, um, you know, those those are players that are, you know, even a Stritzova is playing far better these days than she was, you know, two years ago. So I don't know. I, I, I think that that is a, a legitimate question to that I'm I'm looking forward to see answered um, as to whether or not the, the things have, you know, the, the game has shifted forward. I don't get the sense that it's shifted forward that much, but maybe maybe we'll see. Um, and and I'm happy to be proven wrong. But uh, but it, it'll be interesting. And and she's not short on motivation. That that is for sure. <laughs> so uh, gird your loins. Should be an interesting one. Oh boy, consider them girded. Um, <laughs> I would. I thought it should be interesting. It's a fascinating year shaping up 2017 with Azarenka also coming back at some point. We think uh, during this season some to people tour. Think that I really don't. But okay, you don't. No, I, you don't I think, think she'll be back in 2017? I don't know if she will be or won't be, but I definitely don't feel 51% that she will be. Like, everybody's like, oh, yeah, she's coming back this year. I'm like, is she? I mean, she just had a kid, and that changes things. And, and I know it does, but I feel like she was talking the whole time during her pregnancy. Okay, about talking to back about... And she's already back on court. Sure, but has she said anything since her pregnancy? No. Has not, she said not, anything not, as, 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 as strong as she said while she was pregnant? People have lots of grand ideas when they're pregnant or pre like, oh, yeah, I'll have the baby. It'll be back. Everything changes. Your body changes. Your emotions change. It, I, I, if, I were, if I were a betting person, I would put my money on 2018 at the earliest and not 2017. Mm-hmm. Maybe she proves us wrong. But the idea that people talk about her as being somebody who's in the mix in 2017, I think, is... is uh, I don't know. I, it doesn't sit right with me. I don't. I, I just don't think that that's true. Okay. I will say that she'll be back. My sense is that she's back sooner than that, but time will tell. Uh, and then I guess the other other absentee we should mention, who's obviously out for a different reason, is Kvitova, um, who I think, from what we've heard lately, I would not expect her back in 2017. No. Yeah. Again, it's just one of those things where it's like, yeah, they come back when they come back. I don't. I don't. Yeah. But I don't. Uh, I don't bank on on particularly those two players, Kvitova and Azarenka, as part of my analysis until they actually announce that they are coming back um, because they both, you know, uh, it, it could be years. It could be. You, you just don't know. And um, and so until that time comes, I think that it's a bit rash to kind of build them into narratives that, that simply don't include them at the moment. This is from Harlan Cutshall, which is a great name. Uh, hi, Ben and Courtney. My question is, we often hear about the Federer-Nadal 2008 Wimbledon final being the best men's match of all time. But there is seldom any conversation, at least that I'm aware of, about the best women's match ever. What would the two of you say it is? Um, it's true, first of all. I think in the, in the sort of talk about, and this goes to some of the underlying, I'm sure, you know, sexism or at least just, you know, deference to men and maybe best of five and you know that length equals epicness or quality uh that the men's matches you could talk more about in this context um but the two matches that jumped out right away to me for this question were around the same time period uh were uh the venus williams or both in 2005 actually the venus williams lindsey davenport 2005 wimbledon final and the serena sharapova uh australian open semifinal that same year in 2005 and those all, that's obviously biased towards what my tennis consciousness is in terms of time span. I can't really weigh in on anything before, I don't know, 1998 with any real uh, conviction. But those are the two that jump out to me as being two long three-setters and also just ones that had a big impact on sort of tennis going forward. And the results meant something, which I think is a lot of what people point to with Federer and Nadal, too, is that it was this sort of passing of the... A torch in theory or the seizing of the torch by Nadal and he got to number one pretty soon after that and you know somewhat considered the end of Federer's complete era of you know being at peak um I don't know those are the two come up for me for different reasons you have you have ones that come up for you 
Yeah, I mean, the first one that came up to uh, for me is is Venus Davenport. Uh, that's the first one that I thought of. And again, I, I'm like you, gauging it off of just you know the matches that I've watched in my lifetime and uh, you know watched live and and didn't um, you know I I can't speak to anything before you know 2000 and or no sorry before like 19 probably uh, well 1988 maybe you know before that I probably wouldn't have remembered much um and or at least was conscious enough to like watch them and be like this is one of the greatest matches of of our lifetimes like no oh seven um so so yeah so you know Venus Davenport stands out to me the interesting thing when you start to gauge um women's matches and try to figure out and stack them up against each other is that unlike the men because of best of five um and best of five being played at the majors and at davis cup and then best of three being played elsewhere is that generally speaking like you know when you're looking at it you're looking at best of five so you look at the slams and you, and you look at davis cup maybe um and you think about those matches and it, it's understandable that those matches would resonate more with you because you spend more time with them right like mm-hmm. you've invested you know, three to four to five to six hours into those matches. And so you're going to remember them and you're going to, you know, imbue them with a significance and with a drama that um, uh, because obviously it was six hours of your life that you're not getting back. You're not going to dismiss it Um, with the women. It's different because because it's best of three and best of three is just the standard across the board for the women, you know, pure quality wise you do end up kind of being like well yeah i mean that wimbledon match was great but there was that three you know that final i don't know in in acapulco that was crazy or that like (laughs) third round match at the australian open that was nuts that went like four you know because you can compare apples to apples aside from the fact that of what is what was at stake but you can compare kind of like almost every other aspect of it you know? But it is interesting, like how much of the matches get talked about. You know, like people people talk about Federer Nadal Wimbledon 08, and people talk about Borg McEnroe Wimbledon final. And what do those matches have in common? They're both Wimbledon finals. Like, can mm. great matches only happen in certain venues with certain stakes? You know, and the two matches I named were a Wimbledon final and an Australian Open semifinal. Um, so you know, but could you ever have just you know, as a thought exercise, could the best match ever ever be like a first round match in Cincinnati yeah the, the, I would probably argue no because I think stakes do matter but again it yeah. goes down to it comes down to you know when you talk about the best quality match right like are we talking about quality are we talking about drama and and this is always one of those funny things that I personally find to be incredibly sexist is like this whole idea of like People are far more forgiving of dramatic swings over the course of a five-set match than they are of a best-of-three-set match. So it's like, and and especially when it comes to the men versus the women. So like with the men, when, let's be honest, for four sets of that Australian Open final, it wasn't great. It was not good. Um, you know, like Rafa either played well or Roger played well, or and it was never both of them playing great at the same time. And really, things picked up in the fifth set, and it was great. And so, therefore, everybody remembers that match as being so dramatic. And so this, and it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. but it wasn't good, like from front to back. Like I can tell, I can name other matches of that tournament that were good from front to back. It's also just you know talking about sexism. Like I think that there's just a trend of having more men's matches especially or best of five being framed as like comebacks whereas women matches are yeah. collapses exactly totally you know? absolutely 100%. If, if you're up a set and if you're up a set in a break you're like oh my gosh how did you lose that rather than wow what a valiant comeback unless it's, i mean it depends on who's in it like if it's serena who's coming back from down a set in a break it's more likely to be framed as a comeback maybe yeah um but yeah certainly i think it just is you know best of five is just treated differently and we you know we see we've obviously seen this even recently Courtney just you know the same set of facts from men's and women's stories can be treated totally differently absolutely with no obvious reason to do it except for, for the fact that they're men versus women yeah no, whether it's conscious sure. or subconscious by the by the people uh you know analyzing it it's right. just how it goes it's not always intentional but it's still there I mean I think that we're all part of the world and and I think that 
you know, if anything, something that's been made very crystal clear to me over the course of the last, especially like five years or so, is that to be aware is to be an active, it's an active skill. Mm-hmm. The, you know, to be aware of the sexism that's in the world and to be aware of your latent sexism and your latent um, whatever it is, but all this stuff that's like un- boiling under the surface, yeah. not boiling. Whatever biases surface. you have. Yeah. yeah, whatever biases you have to counteract them takes effort. It, it, it's not natural sometimes because these are ingrained habits that we have and, and ingrained um uh, I don't know, like series of logic, you know, or logic or rationales that we have and you have to like fight them. And, and that's why, you know, what goes on in our heads are one thing and is what gets expressed is a completely other thing. But sometimes those two things are linked and um, that can get you in trouble. But but in this but but with respect to like the best of five and the best of three thing, I mean, like for me, like when we had talked about this a bit offline, um, you know, the first match that came to mind for me was, yeah, Venus Davenport Wimbledon, but also was Sharapova Henin. Uh, WTA Finals Madrid. Yeah, that's a great one. Which was an insane. With Sheriff match. wearing that like weirdly Amish outfit. Yeah, the, the weird teacher school yeah. teacher thing, and it was an epic match. It was incredible. It was pretty. It was quality front to back, and I and you know it was a WTA final, so a lot was at stake. Sharapova lost, and it ended up in the in when you look back on it as being one of those matches where it really kind of propelled each career in different places. So. After that, the following year, Hennen retired. Uh, the it was Hennen's last hurrah that match, yeah. Pretty much, yeah. And then, and then um, Sharapova won the Australian Open uh, just a few months later, uh, and and it was kind of one of those like you know, um, it's like when two chips kind of like hit each other and then bounce back. Uh, yeah, both careers just kind of like went in different directions, and um, so that one I thought was was definitely up there. But again, like. It, I don't know. I, I the nice thing is that I, I will say this is that like I do feel that week in, week out, every single day as someone who covers like the WTA from a pretty granular perspective, like I do genuinely feel like any given day I could be seeing like the best match that I've ever seen. And that, I, I completely buy that. And that's part of why like some of my people ask me what my favorite match of all time is. Um it completely depends on who's asking me how I answer because the one that comes to mind for me, like, and I've said this on the show before, I'm sure, um, is this Dolgopolov Tomic match in, in Australia one year. But it's like no one would ever, those, neither of them are like top 10 guys at that point. So it just wouldn't seem to be even a, 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 to match the prereqs for being an all time great match from most people's, you know, points of view. And there's also other things that can just turn into incredible epics that are, you know, good, bad, ugly, whatever, that just are memorable. Like also like some early round Australia match between Nicolescu and Cornet is still seared in my mind as being just this sort of height of everything, dramatical and great, crazy rallies, but also just a lot of emotion and things I like that matches and things like that. But, but you're right. I think, I think hopefully the way we see it, you can sit down to any match thinking that it could be something, if not best of all time, if not a superlative, then at least really great. And I think people saw that with this uh, St. Petersburg final that I don't know how many people watched oh, so between good. between Milenovic and Putin Seva, which was great. Um, and those are not, you know, two household names at all. But it was still, a, a you know, two players playing well with a great contrast in styles uh, and a great match. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. it, it can not- be it, I, I don't think it has to be the titans of the matches we've named, you know, Federer, Nadal, Sharapova, Serena, Venus, Davenport to be an epic. It it goes towards, and this this will end up being, uh, touching on a bit of my rant later on, but this goes towards a discussion that you and I had over the weekend about the Grammys and about Man. about music. Oh, I can't believe that's your rant, really. I'm so oh, shocked. Who, who knew? So shocked. I know. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll audible it. Maybe I'll do something different uh, now that I mention it. But no, 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 it, no. it has to do with this idea, right, of like Ben and I were talking about the Grammys, right, and we were comparing them to the Emmys, the Oscars, and the Tonys. EGOT. Oscars most of all, yeah. Yeah, but most of all Oscars. But the idea that the Grammys rewards and has traditionally rewarded uh, artists and records and songs and albums that do well commercially. Like, so so very rarely with the Grammys, especially with its biggest awards, will you see it reward something completely out of the blue. It, for the most part, it's going to be, you know, even this year, it's like they gave the award to Adele. There's nothing wrong with Adele. It was great. Like, that's a great album, I guess. Um, I'm, I don't mean that as shade. I just, I just don't, <laughs> I just don't get it. But whatever. Like, objectively. You don't have to like it, yeah. Yeah, objectively, though, I can listen to an Adele album and be like, she's got a great voice. She seems cool. 
all right, like, I don't have a problem with that. And, um, but like, I think Beyonce was a better album. Um, but you know, then people will point out like, well, Adele sold 10 times what, what Beyonce sold. And I never am convinced that that's like a legit argument about quality ever. And so with respect to matches, it's kind of like the similar thing. Like I, like yesterday was Valentine's day and I had tweeted out happy like, Valentine's oh, day happy Valentine's me, day, Ben. How are you? <laughs> Uh, great. <laughs> no problem. But like, <laughs> but like I tweeted out yesterday in the midst of all the insanity of American politics, like my my what I consider the most romantic song of all time, which is this song by a band called the Magnetic Fields called the, this, the Book of Love. It's a very not within hipsters, but generally speaking, it's like a pretty random song. Um, most people, when they think of like the romantic songs, they think of like Stevie Wonder. They think of like. Um, I don't know, the Beach Boys, um, God Only Knows, like U2's One, like whatever, you know, the mm-hmm. traditional ones. Yeah, those are all also great. Um, but like, this is the one that speaks to me. And this is the one that I love. And it's a tiny gem. And I will never and it is mine. And I feel so special about it. And it's the same thing with matches sometimes, you know, like, they're gonna be uh, what you were getting what you were saying about in terms of like, how you answer the question depends on your audience, right? Yeah. Like, like if somebody were to ask me, like, I don't know, like, what's your favorite love song? I'd probably, depending on the audience, like, cop out and say something, like, super generic and cliche. But if it was, like, a good friend and they were asking me, like, legit at me, legit, like, what's your favorite? Like, well, no, it's this song by Magnetic Fields. Like, I think it's just the most amazing song ever. And so there is a bit of that, but I, I just, yeah, it's a complicated question is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Not as complicated as that other question we tried to answer earlier, but pretty complicated. <laughs> um, so many thoughts. Yes. Um, speaking of complicated things and unappre- underappreciated things, you know what people appreciate on the show, I think, I hope, is Take a Number. Oh, my. Which we haven't done in a while. Is it about that time? It's about that time. To break forth the rhythm and the rhyme. For those of you who have not been with us for Take a Number before, this is where we type in a random number generator, get a number between 1 and 100, and then talk about the player on each of the ATP and WT rankings who corresponds to that number. And we just say whatever we think about that person or whatever comes to mind when we see that number pulled. You ready, Courtney? I am ready. All right. So from 1 to 100, our number is... A hundred. Oh no! Really? Yes. Oh, yes, really. Okay. Oh, you're gonna be happy with the guy, though. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> okay, Courtney. Um, who is the woman ranked number one hundred? We did. We did a hundred. Um, for a hundredth episode. We did. That's or episode right. one hundred, rather. Um, but that was like planned. This was not planned. This is just random.org being a troll. So. What do you have for number 100? Well, first of all, I think that we need to do take a number a little bit more frequently so that we avoid these situations. <laughs> but my take a number is an American player. Um, Mine too. Oh, really? Okay. And mm-hmm. a player who I think I know who yours is. Um, but um, given what you said <laughs> before. But um, but yeah, uh, a player who did, uh, who generally most people probably don't follow, probably don't know much about. But she did very well at Wimbledon last year. Um, and uh, is also a player who generates interest from two very distinct countries, uh, mm-hmm. the United States and Denmark. Honestly, and probably more from Denmark than the United States. I, 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 yeah, that was my experience at Wimbledon last year for sure. And uh, it is uh, Julia Bozerup. Yeah, Julia Bozerup, who is who is a Danish American who's gotten used to get wild cards into Copenhagen when that was a WTA tournament. Um, her dance partner, Courtney. Just, I'm pretty sure you can guess who it is. You want to guess? Okay. Is it Jared Donaldson? It is Jared Donaldson. <laughs> Fair enough. Well played. <laughs> Who I just see here, to be, I don't know if you knew this, but his residence is listed as being Irvine. <laughs> That's where I went to college. Uh, I know. Kismet. Um, so weird. No, to take that, I take that back. But yes, Jared Donaldson, who I find to be completely adorable on every level in terms of his, the way that he plays and his attitude and whatnot, uh, which is why there's this weird running joke here. But, um, but yeah, Jared Donaldson, young American talent, um, had a, you know, had that great match at the Austria, no, 
U.S. Open. U.S. Open, right? Yeah, he beat. Um, he did something good at the U.S. Open. Hold on, let me let me see what he did. But he also did something. Um, really I think good he made in, in Australia somewhere. But go ahead. He might have something in Australia, but I think no, he was more known for U.S. No, he lost a bad match in Australia this year. He lost to like uh, Dutra Silver. Or something no, no, no. I'm, I'm not saying Australian Open. I'm saying that he did something good in Australia, like whether it was oh, at maybe uh, Brisbane, Brisbane or Sydney. Brisbane. Yeah, yeah against K. I feel like he took the first set against Kay Nishikori, maybe? I'm looking it up mm-hmm. right now. Yeah, and so his my so what I was thinking of is U.S. Open. He beat David Goffin first round. Um, oh, wow. And then beat Troisky second round to make the third round, where he lost to Karlovich in straights as a qualifier. So that was his big, huge breakout thing. Yeah, in, in, and, in, yeah. in Brisbane, he beat Gilles Muller straight sets, mm-hmm. who eventually won Sydney. Future Sydney champ. Uh, and then he took the first set off Kay. Wow, yeah. That's so what I was doing... remembering, yeah. He's doing selected big thing, but he also, you know, then lost to Dutra Silva. So his results have been not have been patchy a little bit, but hot and cold. And when it's been hot, it's been good. Um, he is from uh, Rhode Island. He spent a lot of time growing up or uh, training in Argentina. Uh, David Waldstein of the New York Times did a story about his sort of training and history last year during the Open. If you're curious about what Jerry, I don't remember the details of it off the top of my head. But he went down there to sort of get that sort of clay court base of the sort of Andy Murray model of uh how to you know teach a teen to become a pro and so he's a a big guy he's not as big as i thought he was listening i thought he was tall he's listed at six two i thought he was taller than that yeah so but donaldson is part of this generation he's somebody who's been less part of the system i feel like in terms of usta than uh kozlov than tiafo than fritz and so he's a bit of an outsider he's working with a, he's worked with a bunch of high profile coaches he'd worked with taylor uh dent in Years past, and now he's working with Jam Michael Gamble and also Marty Fish, I think, on the side, or it's more of a consulting role. So he's somebody who's clearly invested a lot in his career. And he has a, and that sort of intensity shows on court. He can have something of a temper for yeah, sure. He, he's hyper serious. Like, he, oh, yeah. The ambition and the intensity is definitely there. He's not one that seems to be lackadaisical whatsoever about uh, his, his ambition. Yeah. He's also somebody, though, who I know from people who've dealt with him, he has a very good reputation. Uh, from what I've heard from organizers of things, I know like Mike Cation, uh, who's we've had on the show, who's the commentator on the Challenger Tour, says like has told mentioned something about Donaldson. I think you know being really quick to like donate signed rackets for charity stuff and things like that. So he's a he just a seems good like egg. a good dude. That's all I'm saying. We haven't seen him much. He'll be, hopefully be a probably be a bigger part of the future than the present. Um, but early indications are Courtney likes this kid. And I think he's swell too. And also, he doesn't have as much of an accent, but his family's <laughs> general. I said this every time I talk about, to you about him. Um, their family's very New Englandy accents are delightful, and hopefully get showcased to somewhere prominent because they're just great. I love a good I, I love a good New England New England accent. I think that they're just the best. So, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to to, to seeing. I mean, he's just a fun kid to kind of watch play. He's very Bambi out there. Like, you know, like mm-hmm. it, it's not all. It's Varevish almost. Yeah, yeah, it hasn't completely coalesced and, and gelled, but but all the, the, the parts are there. And um, so, yeah, so so catch Jared Donaldson when you can. I remember it being a big deal at the time. But, yeah, this golf fan win, he beat him 6-0 in the fourth. That's an emphatic win. Uh, yeah. Julia Bosarup, I know less about. She's been around a lot longer. It's really come on pretty strong in the last year after having a more or less unremarkable in terms of the levels we cover career before that. But she was a lucky loser at Wimbledon or a qualifier. And then she got qualifier, right? I believe that's she correct, got, yes. But then she got a little bit of a bump when uh, Ben Chich retired against her, I think, second round, I want to say. And so that took her ranking up a bit. But she backed it up, I think, by doing pretty well in Australia this year, too. I think she qualified in one... A match or two, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, she, she's, um, you know, she's a solid player. She's a player that, you know, generally speaking, you know, it, it, it seems like she, yeah, that, that, that she needs a few more weapons and a, and a little bit more work. Um, but uh, but very nice. Um, yeah, Danish-American um, currently taking classes from Penn State. Uh, yeah. I think... I think I want to say was she a junior or did she go to I can't remember if she went to university for a little while or not I think she did turn pro um but yeah I mean I I talked to her quite a bit when when she had that run at, at Wimbledon last year and she was 
perfectly nice and, and articulate and all that sort of stuff. And uh, yeah, it's Californian, right? Yeah, yeah, Californian. Um, yeah, the whole story last year at Wimbledon was that like she had, you know, she was doing all that stuff and qualify, uh, making herself through qualifying and 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 playing pretty well all the time. Like midterms or something were going on at Penn State, mm. so she was like kind of juggling all that and doing Excel sheets when she was getting off court uh, <laughs> to, to, to do all that. Um, but yeah, I, you know, kind of surprised that she's still at number one. Um, or I'm sorry, at number 100. Given Well, here's what I was going to say. Here's what I just saw. This is her actually her career high. This is her first week ever inside the top 100. Yeah, yeah. But given, her first week ever being eligible for taking number. So that's right. That That is true. But yeah, just given the fact that she did make third round at Wimbledon and, and um, yeah, I, I just would have thought that she would have been a bit higher by now. Um, but that hasn't been the case, but, um, but yeah, that's Julia Bozer up. I think we did very well with number 100, <laughs> all things considered, <laughs> but getting a triple digit number, it's not, not easy. It's but. not always easy. I think that in the past, like when we've gotten like super low numbers on take a number, it's been a bit of a disaster. <laughs> At least but we always knew fun. we, I was very sure who these people were, at least. Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah. I'm just looking at both Rope's results. Yeah, she made she made semis of the Midland 100K, which is right. what got her into top 100. Yeah, and just looking uh, up as just well, recently. just additional Bozerup facts. Because uh, I was like, wait, how do I... And semis of Quebec City. Yeah, semis of Quebec City. But, um, but yeah, she trained under Robert Lansdorp, the famous mm. uh, stroke instructor for like Sharapova and Davenport. And uh, and the like, um, and uh, what else was it? Younger than though, she's twenty five, so she wouldn't have. Yeah, yeah, she was younger. Overlapped with even Sharapova, yeah, probably. Uh, she won Orange Bowl. Okay. Beating Christina McHale. Yeah, but she was ranked outside top two hundred coming to Wimbledon. So this has been a very fast. Yeah, it ascent. has been. It has been. It has been quite a rise. So so we'll see uh, whether or not she can continue to build on it, but. I'm pretty sure that uh, her success last year, is particularly at Wimbledon and and all that, definitely kind of like put a little extra spring in her step and gave her some confidence. But um, but yeah, but yeah, we'll find out. Hopefully, being on take a number puts spring in anybody's step. It's always a bump. Always a bump. This has been number one hundred, Julia Bosarup and Jared Donaldson. So thank you guys very much for listening to this episode of No Challenges Remaining. And thank you for following along with us when you're not listening. You can follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can also subscribe to the show on any podcasting app of your choice, including iTunes and uh, TuneIn and Stitcher Radio. I just got one of these Amazon uh, Echo Dot things. You did. And you can ask it, like, hey, play the most recent episode of No Challenges Remaining. And it will do it. That's It cool. knows us. It so knows that was us. cool. Yeah. I, I, felt, I felt so something in this world trying that out. Um, yeah. So that is an option for you as well, if you want to hear that. Uh, hear us that way. And send us emails for upcoming shows. We'll hopefully get some more questions going later on as well. No Challenges Remaining at gmail.com is how to find us there. Courtney, I know you've sort of spoiled a bit of your rant rave about the Grammys, but do you have any more you want to add to it or a different topic? Um, Whatever. I'll probably switch topics. I mean, I I don't okay. have an inherent problem with the fact that Adele won. Uh, not my bag personally, but I know enough people and have, that, that I respect who say that she's very good, so that's perfectly fine. I still think Lemonade was a cultural touchstone that is going to be the album that you put into you know the time capsule Museums, yeah yeah the, and adele went, adele went beyond above and beyond in her acceptance speech yeah and and that's then yeah i mean I, I saw a few think pieces as well the next day being like dude we need to fix something about the grammys because we can't even be putting these people in this situation where they're getting these grammys when they absolutely 100 percent know that like their piece of work is not superior to somebody else's um but I mean, well, I mean, I guess, okay, I'll do my rant rave basically off of off of that a little bit and kind of um, further explaining my point during the podcast. So just this idea of, you know, there are those award shows that reward that at least as cynical as we want to be and say, oh, award shows are, are shit and then they don't actually reward the things that are deserving. 
you know, I th- I do think the Emmys, even the Golden Globes, um, you know, the Tonys, the the Oscars, I think that they do try to go out of the BAFTAs. They do go out of their way to try and reward art. That it's not about the box office pull. It's not about that this starred, you know, famous person or that this is a famous person. That at the end of the day, they are trying to reward the thing that they feel like they should reward, uh, the thing that they should encourage. And, and that's something that I feel is like really, really lacking about the Grammys that really, really bugs me. And this is, again, something that anytime that you're talking about awards being grant, uh, awarded on any on any level, you know, uh, in any field, um, it, it their awards are not always about what is best or what is superior. A lot of times awards are about what you want to encourage and what you want to say, yes, this is what our industry is. This is what we should mm-hmm. strive to be and what we want to be. And I feel like, you know, some awards are better than others in terms of trying to execute on that. Um, and I and I do think the Grammys missed out on a, on a really significant opportunity to, you know, basically say like, yes, artists be aspirational you know like create visual albums create things that are cultural touchstones as opposed to like yeah it was a great album and yes obviously the music and and from every (laughs) trust me based off of my twitter feedback i understand that adele means a lot to a lot of people um Mm -hmm. but in terms of what what beyonce did as just a piece of art I just have a really hard time like with the Grammys, like not recognizing that that is the thing that they that the music industry should stand for. And that is the thing that the music industry should encourage as opposed to. Yeah, what it did, which is I'm like, just yeah, it, it, that that frustrates me. I'm just thinking you were referring, you're referring to like the Grammys as a collective. So I'm just trying to remember it's an academy like the Oscars, right? That votes for the Grammys, more or less. Yeah, yeah. No. Just trying to who these voters are. I'm just trying to think who these voters are who are making this well, choice. Is yeah, it like it, record executives or is it artists or who is in this academy? It's both. It's very similar to like the Academy of of, of Arts and Motion Pictures. I think that the, the, the Grammys are voted for by the RIAA. Yeah. Um, which is a combination. Like Adele said that she voted for Beyonce on her on her <laughs> ballot. Um, but it but it also includes executives. And again, like I, I just think that it's an interesting it's an interesting insight into the mindset of the recording industry that maybe there's a and I think that this is true if you were to ask actually ask me and force me to like kind of like make a make a declaration. But I think that on the whole, the music industry is less inclined to consider itself art. I think there's a commodity there's there's a commoditization of itself like it's more concerned about making money and part of that is because its business model is under attack and has been under attack for the last 20 years with the advent of digital music and things like that and and they're trying to figure out how to make money so maybe that's why is like there's this idea of like we need to 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 reward money making schemes because we we are not we do not have the luxury to reward art right now maybe that's an idea of it and like this maybe. idea of like Beyonce has the luxury to make art because she is Beyonce, like right, like she can fund, she can self fund Lemonade as a visual album and do all that. And most artists can't do that; they need record companies behind them to to back them. And so maybe they're making a statement and not supporting that. But in contrast to the recording industry, when you look at like the Emmys, when you look at the Oscars, in particular those two, because I'm more familiar with those two, they they do consider themselves artists, and so they reward art. You know, like that's kind of always been the case, like 30 Rock and Parks and Recreation and, you know, a lot of like shows, even like a Mad Men. They don't get tons of viewership compared to the two and a half men's and the two broke girls and I don't know, mm-hmm. two, two, two or the CSIs Big or whatever. Bang yeah. Like, you know, but like the Emmys took a turn where they, they started to reward the things that they wanted to reward and they wanted to. Tell the world this is what our industry is. And I just think the Grammys are like way retrograde. Like they're just so behind on that. They're still just like rubber stamping stuff that makes money. And that's just like sad and cynical when like to me music more so than television and movies, music will always remain to me like an art form in a way that the television and movies have never been. So I think that's why I have such like an issue with it, you know? 
is because it's just like it's so in contrast to how I see it. My rave is slightly maybe related, but it's I, I rewatched a couple um, fave 90s movies of mine from when I was younger. The first of which was Drop Dead Gorgeous. Oh, so good. Which is so, so good. Um, it's a, for those of you don't know, it's a, speaking of, um, you know, getting mad that people who don't deserve don't win awards. The whole <laughs> movie is kind of based around that. And it is about a beauty pageant in Minnesota. It's a very dark comedy uh, mockumentary. It's great. Recommend all of it. And then I rewatched Sister Act 1 and 2, which also mm-hmm. were just like, obviously, there's an amazing Broad City uh, yeah. moment of Sister Act 2 uh, recently. But then I was looking them up online and Drop Dead Gorgeous only gets a 44 on Rotten Tomatoes. Sister Act 1 gets a 71, which okay. But Sister Act 2 gets a 7%. What? And like these, Lord these hell! Movies, these movies are not... First of all, I was shocked that Drop Dead Gorgeous got a 44. I was offended Oh, yeah. That. No, but no, I remember and, when Drop Dead Gorgeous came out and like nobody got it. Yeah. Like critics did not understand that movie. They just thought it was a shitty movie. They didn't understand like the cultural commentary. Oh yeah, you know. So and and so so my whole my whole like moral of the story, if I even have one here, is just to, and I do this myself a lot when I'm flipping through, you know, Netflix or Hulu or whatever or you know however else. I always look at like the scores for movies, but sort of decide what to watch. And I'm gonna make a conscious effort try to to do that less, because I wouldn't want Drop Dead Gorgeous is 44 dissuading anybody from watching it when it's a uh, hundred in my heart. And also oh. also side rant. Rotten Tomatoes scoring system is just flawed. Yeah, Rotten Tomatoes scoring system is completely flawed. I just to, uh, an addendum to to yours and what my advice would be and and what I've tried to always do is I will take into consideration positive reviews. I don't take into consideration so much negative reviews. In other words, like I think that like if enough people say something's good, I think that I'm inclined to be like, okay, I'll check that out. But if a bunch of people like don't like something, if anything, that intrigues me more. Like, mm. I, I've always found that, like, with art or, like, whatever, like, even a negative reaction is still a reaction. Like, the worst thing that you can do is that you ma- you spend your, like, you know, six months making a movie and you put it out and people are like, yeah, that's all right. Take it or leave it. Like, <laughs> like when somebody's, like, lukewarm about it, like, clearly you've done something wrong, um, which is my issue with pop music. But um, it sounds like it could be about Adele again. I'm just thinking like there's no Adele gets no bad reviews. Yeah, which yeah. is fine. There, there's nothing wrong with that. But I, I, I just think that, like, I just generally, like, I will dismiss, like, I won't really read too much into negative reviews. Like, because everybody's, like, I don't know you. I don't know your life. Like, I, <laughs> why should I, why should I, like, take your uh, take on it? Like, you know what I mean? Um, so, you know, the best thing is to have your, like, core group of, like, reviewers that you respect and, like, use them. But Rotten Tomatoes takes into account so many like shitty oh this is gonna be t- but, sound terrible like shitty bloggers and like whatever no, just no, like completely have a take but also but also just it's metric it's like it's all it's just binary like yeah it good or true. bad and so if you have all if you have everybody like let's say you have 10 reviewers of whatever you know pedigree you want to give them um not that so i'm sure there's some great bloggers out there but they all give a movie like a seven out of ten it gets a hundred percent yep and that's just not good math well and also too i mean there's just like yeah i mean everything just all the skewing of everything like um like there are certain movies that i've often found particularly ones that are like not of the pure horror genre but kind of horror-y but also psychological but kind of like positioned as an art house movie that like, what like are you talking about? I, I can't think of something like off the top of my head but I, I feel like this has happened to me before where I get sucked into reviews like oh this is so good and then I watch it and I'm like dude that's just a freaking horror movie and I hate more horror movies like or instances especially because a lot of like movie criticism is um especially once you get into the blogs and stuff like that it's very male driven and male oriented and like dude movie people are like the worst like Mm. they're just the worst people because they they just they're they're like so like up their own asses about are we gonna start talking about birdman again (laughs) we can but we're not gonna but yeah just like like sometimes like just you know the 20 something like dude who's like way into movies most often times he's a complete and utter douchebag so like i don't think that that guy should be like skewing 
Rotten Tomatoes because he loves Birdman because he wants to be the next Inaritu. It's like, you know what? Screw you, man. Birdman sucks. Like, stop skewing these like these aggregated viewing metric or review metrics. Birdman sucks. I think we get your point. And with that, I will say don't watch Birdman. Watch Drop Dead Gorgeous. It is a palate cleanser of a great proportion from anything pretentious. It is the opposite of that. And it's great. And we'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Ciao, ciao.